a reciting of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Almighty Father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the grave. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Zach for that. Jesus wept. It's a great verse in general, but uh, it's especially great if you're trying to memorize scripture. Jesus wept. It's a common story for those who grew up in church. It's a common joke that if there was any verse to memorize in Sunday school, that was the verse to choose first, right? Not because of its, you know, depth of meaning or anything like that, but because of its, its brevity. It's the shortest, of course. So why not choose that verse? And I would guess it's, it's probably one of the most memorized verses in all of Scripture, maybe other than John 3.16, just because it's so short. But I bring this up to ask the question, does memorizing words in a particular order, say the order that are in your particular translation of the Bible, actually, actually do anything? Do they do anything in you? Do they do anything for you? On the one hand, many would say, yeah, God's word never returns void. Something happens. And yet, on the other hand, we read in James 1.22, it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Most would agree that there's certainly nothing wrong with memorizing Bible verses and memorizing the Apostles' Creed, as Zach just did so brilliantly, or memorizing the Lord's Prayer or songs or anything like that. In fact, Scripture memorization for, for centuries has been recognized as a fantastic spiritual discipline. It's good. But memorization for the sake of memorization, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, isn't enough. Knowledge can't transform a soul because knowledge can actually puff up. Even the demons believe cognitively in their, in their minds, and yet they haven't been transformed into Christ-likeness. So what's the, what's the secret sauce to not just being hearers of the word, but doers? What is it that allows the knowledge we're receiving in Sunday school or church on Sundays or small group throughout the week to really sink into our hearts and once it's in our hearts, should it stop there? Why is it that so many of us feel like we've, we've stalled out on our spiritual growth? Why do we relate to the Apostle Paul when he writes 
in Romans 7, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. It's the question on so many of our minds every year on January 1st, and the question is this, how do I grow? I really grow. How do I develop in my faith? And how do I mature? Is this all that God has for me, or is there more to it than this? Is there more to Him than this? James 1, 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Well, happy new year. Anybody out there get some rest last night? Feeling rested today? Uh, <laughs> up late. People asked like, hey, did you, uh, did you stay up late last night? Were you there at midnight for it? And I was like, I was awake at midnight, but only because Christy elbowed me and said, quit snoring <laughs> at that point. Other than that, I go to bed early. I don't stay up for the ball to drop or anything like that. And I'm uh, looking forward to talking today a little bit about New Year, just talking to the Lord. Hey, Lord, what do you want Radiant to know in this coming year? And I had a, a great sermon about how to be loving and kind as a church. And then I went and played cards last night with like 14 people from Radiant. And I walked away from that after that. I'm like, no, they just need Jesus, man. Uh, that's that's all they need. I just need to talk about Jesus, man. They're brutal. Nothing will turn a nice, friendly grandma into a card shark faster than a good game of Uno, man. My goodness on that. You're like, yeah, Uno, draw four. Thanks uh, on that. But having a good time. I am looking forward to diving in today. You know what? Uh, playing cards last night, I was reminded of why I enjoy groups so much, whether that's our large group gathering here or just hanging out in small groups and, and it's just the group dynamics. You know, if you're in a group long enough, you rise. There are some people in there that are a little more extroverted than some of the others are. You know what I mean? They, they, they'll talk a little more. They're a little more outgoing and, and, and friendly. And then there's some of the introverts sometimes we see in there. And sometimes they're a bit more reserved. And, you know, when they talk, they usually have something really great to say, but kind of keep to themselves. There's a, a group of people that just have this natural gift of hospitality. And I love that group of people. And then there's people like me that like to eat their hospitality, and, and, and I'm very thankful for all that they do. If you get into a group, you know what, there, there's always one or two in there that they love to go the deeper dive. They really like to tear into scripture and to learn some more. And as a, a group, if you were to announce, hey, you know what, we're going to spend the next week, I think, in the book of Leviticus, they would be like, score, man, like best day ever for them. Then there's another group of people in small group, man, they just have hearts like shepherds. They love caring for people. They love building a family and building others up. And man, we could just use more and more of those kind of folks. And we love having them in the small groups. But then there's a third group that we get of folks, and I love these folks too, but they've just got this angst. They've got this passion to get in the game, to make a difference in their communities, to serve, and, and, and to do all kinds of things, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the community, and we love them too. And what I've learned in any small group, and it's true here even on Sunday mornings, we need all three. We need all three 
uh, of those kinds of people working together in the church. And the illustration I'd like to use today, and I'm hoping you walk away with and reflect on some more, is what we need as a church is to be a church that has head knowledge, but from the head it moves to our heart, and from our heart it pours out from our hands. We've got to be all three. It's got to be here, it's got to be in our heart, and it's got to be pouring out from our hands if we're going to be a people that live out faith in the community around us. And what I've learned about faith, anytime we talk about it, there's at least three things that we're talking about with faith, and it's important. So if you have your worship guide today, we, uh, we have a room on there for sermon notes and for fill-ins, and I encourage you to take a moment to, to fill those in. Why do we do that? One, I find that when I write something down, I tend to remember it more. Uh, the second reason is so that you can take those notes, go throughout the week, pray over it, ask the Lord to reveal to you what he has to say through it, and just kind of reflect on what we say today. So if you've got your notes, I encourage you, take some notes and uh, follow along with the fill-ins. We talk about faith being three things. The first one is this. The first aspect of faith is believing. And we understand that when we believe, we believe with our head. I believe this, or I believe that, and it's important. Our beliefs and having accurate theological beliefs are important, but we cannot stop there. It's also important when we talk about faith to be trusting. So we're believing, but we're also trusting, and, and trust comes from the heart. For those who know the verse, let me hear it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. So we understand that trust piece of our faith, it comes from our heart. But we can't stop there either. It has to go from there into our doing. And what we learned then is that obedience produces fruit. James would tell us that faith without works is what? Dead. So it's not enough just to have the head knowledge. It's not enough only to have the heart piece, and it's not enough to just be doing. We need all three working together. It's got to go from your head to your heart to your hands and all that we do. Because if all we have is head knowledge, then we're simply on the intellectual journey. And this is what I lean towards, so I have to be cautious in my own life. And what happens when we get on the intellectual journey? Well, we get all kinds of knowledge, and, and we learn all kinds of things, but we don't really apply it. And we have to ask ourselves, what good is having a lot of head knowledge if we don't share it with anybody else, and our community and the world around us doesn't see it put into action? The other problem with having only head knowledge is it can be very cold if you don't add the heart piece to it. You've got to add the loving, caring, kind, gentle piece to it as well. I'll say this later. I'll say it now. and I don't mean this to hit hard, but some of the smartest Christians I know are some of the meanest Christians I know because they got the head but not the heart. And they're more concerned with being right than they are the relationship. We have to be careful about having only head knowledge. And then we've got people that, that just love to shepherd. They love to care. They love to help others. People out. They just have these eyes of grace and love that we need so much more. But we have to be careful of just stopping there as well. Because that love, that grace, that kindness has to pour out into action. 
I've always used the analogy with faith. You know, let's say we walked out of church and we look across the parking lot and we see some guy mugging another person and we all look at each other and go, that's wrong, that's bad, that should not happen. And we nod our heads, get in our car and go away. What good was our faith if we don't step in and do something about that happening? So you can have it here. You can believe it here. It's eventually got to make its way here. We have to be doers of the word as well. But then there's a caution for those who are only doers. Because if you're a doer and you don't have the heart, we have a word for that as well. It's called legalism. Then you're just doing it because it's the rules or it's the right thing to do or you're trying to impress somebody else. So doing without the heart is empty as well. And let me tell you, did you know you can be doing the right things for the wrong reasons? Just because you're doing the right things doesn't mean you've got your heart in it. We've got to be doing the right things for the right reasons if we're going to be a church that transforms a community, as I believe that God is calling us to do. A church that is genuinely a blessing in the community around them. A church that if we closed our doors tomorrow would be dearly missed in the world around us. Is that your passion? Do you want us to be a church that would be dearly missed if we closed our doors tomorrow? And so the harder question we have to ask is, are we that church? And we're going to talk about that more in the next few weeks. We have to make sure that our love aligns with our heart and our head and our hands. In fact, and this matches, by the way, what we've learned in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We would see in Mark them repeating Deuteronomy in what we call the Shema, a prayer that, that Orthodox Jews pray every single week. But the Shema says in Mark 12, 30, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, which is your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Your soul encompasses the entirety of who you are, but then it breaks down from there. Your mind is your head, your heart is your heart, your strength is your hands, built right in and woven throughout the entire Old Testament, New Testament is this idea that it has to go from your head to your heart, to your hands. It's built into who we are. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, we could spend all day talking about any one of those three things, but today I just want to focus on one very quickly, if I could, and that's the heart. Because the Bible talks about the condition of your heart all throughout. And you've got to wrestle with this question today. What does your heart say about who you are? What does your heart, down deep, the real one, what does it say about you? And we could find all kinds of passages throughout Scripture that talks about the heart. In fact, we can then focus in on Jesus and say, Jesus talked about the heart a lot. We just don't have time to cover them all. And so I looked just in the book of Matthew, kind of asking, what did Jesus have to say in the book of Matthew about the heart? And some of the things that came out right away, he told us to be pure in heart. He would say, don't commit adultery in the heart. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Here's the one that when you preach on it gets Christians mad sometimes. Your heart follows your treasure. It does not say your treasure follows your heart. And if you want to get your heart right, start with your treasure. Jesus would tell us to imitate him when he said, be gentle and humble in heart. He would also say your mouth speaks what your heart is full of. 
We'll get to that one in a minute as well. And then he would say, we understand from our hearts. So it's from our hearts that we begin to understand. Understanding leads to wisdom because it's a mixture of understanding and discernment, which becomes wisdom. So wisdom begins in the heart as well. These are just a few things that Jesus had to say about the heart, and he thought it was important. But we've got to ask that question again. What is the condition of your heart? How are you doing right now? What would you say the condition of your heart is? Because there's one verse in Matthew I left out, and I did so on purpose because that's the one I want to dig into a little bit deeper right now if I could. That one's Matthew 15, verse 19, and it says this. It says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And what's interesting as we read this verse, I think a lot of us could read it very quickly, go past it, and go, you know what? I'm not really doing any of those things. I'm actually doing pretty good. Uh, none of those really apply. I'm not a, I'm not a murderer, and, and I'm not you know, committing adultery. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. But how many of you who have been around the Word of God long enough understand when you really dive into the teachings of Jesus, his definitions of things were oftentimes different than ours. And so we need to ask, what did Jesus mean? when he said these things, and how do they apply in our life? And so let's dive into those real quick, if we can today. We'll just take each one piece by piece, if we could. The first one he mentioned was murder. And I think most of us out there would say, I've never murdered anybody. I, I think, and I, I hope I can say that, or I'm in a really dangerous crowd right now on that. But I think most of us would raise our hands and say, I've never murdered anybody. I'm good, Pastor Jason. But how many of you know that Jesus would tell us at one point in his teaching, if you hate another brother, you've committed a murder in your heart? Oof. See, he sees it a little bit differently than we do. How many know that the Bible on numerous occasions also tells us that your words have the ability to speak life and they have the ability to speak what? Death. Your words have the power of life and death. Proverbs 18.21 taught that. So what we learn is that your words matter and we, we can find out as we take that further. You can murder somebody with your words. You have to ask yourself, this next thing I'm about to say to this person, this next thing, this next conversation we're going to have, is that going to speak life into them? Or is it going to speak death into them? It doesn't say sticks and stones, by the way, will break my bones. It says death. And if you've ever been on the other side of someone's vitriol, anger, and when they vomit their words on you, you know just how destructive and disgusting it can be. And in a moment like that, it can destroy a relationship. Your words can be death. Be careful how you use them. And may we be a church in the coming year that is very attentive to the words we say and how we say them. May we speak life into everyone. The next one is adultery, and again, that's another one. Someone will say, I have been faithful to my spouse. I've never committed adultery, but again, we look uh, at Jesus' words and we dive a little deeper, and how many of you know that Jesus told us if you even look at another person lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart? His standard's way higher than ours. 
How you doing with the porn? Ouch, Pastor Jason, you're stepping on my toes. I know, that's what I do. This would be a good time to stop, though, wouldn't it? How you doing with this one, guys? Throughout the Old Testament, God would accuse Israel of a particular sin, and it was adultery. You know why he was accusing Israel of adultery? Because they had other gods. They were worshiping other gods instead of him. And from his vantage point, they were committing adultery as a result of that. They had idols. And what's an idol? Is An idol is anything that comes between us and our perfect and pure worship of God. And I have to ask you, what's coming between your perfect and pure worship of God? At the core of it is we have to wrestle with the question of what has your time and attention? And you can start with the big ones, you know, money, sex, power. Just start there. Do you, or are, you, are you struggling with any one of those? You have to ask, what has my time and attention? Why? Because it really gets down to this. Whatever has your time and attention has your worship. And I don't care how ardent and atheist you think you are, I will say this with all certainty. Everybody worships something, even if what you worship is you. We all worship something. You have to ask yourself, what has my time and attention? What is distracting me from my pure and holy worship of creator God? Money? Sex? Did you know your kids can be an idol? That's a hard one. How about social media? How are you doing with that one? It can be an idol too. What is it, and this is a great time of year to ask, that is keeping you from worshiping God in absolute abandonment? Because I want that for you in your spiritual life. The third one. Let's grab another tough one. Sexual immorality. You know, I've had people tell me recently, Jesus never talked about sex or sexual immorality or anything like that. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's right there in that verse. He most certainly did. And, I, and we don't have time to dive into this one clearly, so let me just make you mad as quickly as I can on this one, uh, on that. And, and, and the point is this. Uh, Jesus was not unclear about what sexual immorality was. And when Jesus spoke about sexual immorality, he spoke about it from the perspective of a first century Orthodox Jewish person that had a strong understanding standing of the Old Testament. He did not care about what the United States, Western Hemisphere, and the world of 2023 thought about sexual immorality. He was only concerned with what the Old Testament had to say about sexual immorality. Are we clear on that? I know we don't like that because we want to bend and twist Scripture to be whatever we want it to be, and, and, and we're afraid of upsetting relatives and friends by having a, a conversation like that. But, but you know what? How many of you know Jesus was so popular in his day by telling the truth, they nailed him to a cross? He didn't, he didn't mix his message with the culture, and he didn't water it down. We need to be asking that too. But did you know sex is not the issue at the center of sexual immorality? What's at the center of the issue of sexual morality is this. It's using a God-given gift in a God-forbidden way. And there can be things other than sex that you can use in God-forbidden ways. Because sex is a gift. It's a gift given to us by the Creator to be used in the confines of marriage. 
But there are other things you have been given as gifts from God. And you have to be asking yourself, am I using them in a God-loving way or a God-forbidden way? Are there things in your life that you are not doing that God would frown upon? And that's a hard question on that. But we all need to ask it. The next one is theft, and obviously when we're talking about theft, we're, we're talking about stealing. And we don't spend a lot of time on this one. We teach our kids this, or we should. I'd call it, you know, kindergarten philosophy. Most kids grow up learning and should learn that, you know, if it doesn't belong to you, don't take it. It's, that's, that's stealing. And very rarely would I sit in a room and go, hey, theft is wrong, and someone go, no, I totally disagree with that, Pastor. I mean, it's just kind of understood. If it doesn't belong to you, you don't take it. But did you know there's other things you can take from people as well? You can take away love, their joy, their innocence. You can take away their trust. You can steal hope if you're not careful in someone. I have to ask you, are you the sort of person when someone hangs out with you and they're around you for a time, do they feel more empowered to be loving, joyful, kind, and gentle? Or, 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 you know, can we just be honest? Are you kind of a crotchety, angry, mean, argumentative person? We want to be a place where we can be a hope giver, but not a joy taker in our lives. And while I can come and steal your wallet, that's one thing. But you know what? When you steal someone's joy, that's something else altogether. Are you a light in the people's lives around you? And when they're around you, do they have a sense of joy and hope and peace and love being around you? The next one is false testimony. And again, another one we teach our kids. What's at the core of false testimony? It's lying. When you give false testimony about somebody else, you're lying. And most of us know you shouldn't lie to each other. But there's a form of lying that can be harder to see, and we covered that in a sermon series this past year. Here at this campus, Pastor Ben spoke on it for four weeks. We, the series was Live No Lies. And what we've discovered is that there are lies that we tell ourselves. There are lies that the culture tells us. And there's another way of lying, too, that many of us have to work through. We lie when we pretend to be something we are not. When we put a mask on. And this one's destructive to relationships. Why? Because at the core of healthy relationships is the necessity for authenticity, transparency, and for being real. And when we put masks on and we try to pretend to be something we're not, we're not being authentic anymore. We're lying. Not only are we lying to others, but we're lying to ourselves. And this year, I want us to stop lying to ourselves. And you know what the biggest lie is we believe? We believe the lie of the enemy that says, listen, if you take the mask off and if you show them who you really are and they get a picture of who you really are and what you think, they're going to hate you. That's a lie from the pit of hell. What would it look like if we were a truly transparent and real community of people who looked at each other and loved each other for where we are and said, I love you because I was loved and I serve a loving God. And we see them with grace because I have to tell you something. When God found me, I was not in a good place and he loved me anyways. He will love you too. Stop lying to ourselves. 
And the last one can be even worse, and that one's slander. Slander involves some of these other lies that we've already talked about because it can be with our words and it can be through lying and it can be through stealing. It, it, it involves a lot of these other aspects, but it's unique in it because slander is particularly destructive to relationships. And at the core, what I'm asking for us as a church in this, this next year is can we build someone up rather than tearing them down? What if our posture in every conversation, everything we do, was to build somebody up rather than to tear them down? There's a lot of ways that we can tear each other down. They're subtle. You can gossip about somebody behind their back. We call that the meeting after the meeting. You can plant seeds of doubt in their character. You ever been around someone like that? Yeah, he's a good person, but, you know, he's got that thing. Or, well, did you hear that little thing on that? And we just plant these little seeds, but over a while, it's a death by paper cuts, isn't it? Those seeds get planted and grow. And the third thing is we can just say things that aren't true. All three of those things are destructive, not only to our relationships, but as a church community, the relationships in our small groups, wherever it may be. So I'm asking two things of the church this year. And if you don't take anything away, take these two things, please, today. It's so important. The first one is this. Assume the best in others before assuming the worst. If someone does something you're not sure of, is your first thought, hey, you know what, there's something I don't know. There's probably, I don't see the whole story. You know what, there's some things I need to go find out. Or is your first thought, what a jerk, what a creep. They're evil. What would it look like as a church, as a body, if we chose to assume the best in each other before we assumed the worst? How would that change our relationships? The second one's just as hard. May our posture be that we protect people's greatness and everything we do. And you say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jason? What I mean is this, built firmly into the Genesis story and throughout the Bible is this. Each of you are the image bearers of God. You are his reflection. And God doesn't make junk. And our job is to protect one another, especially Christians. Because if you're a Christian, you are a child of God. You are a child of the king of the universe, which makes you a prince and a princess. You are royalty. And so when you speak about another person in your faith community, in your small group, in the world around you, you are speaking of royalty. And that royalty demands an enormous amount of respect and honor that comes with it. When you speak of someone around Radiant Church, you protect their greatness. Amen? What could God do with a church that does these two things? Assumes the best in others before assuming the worst and protects the greatness of someone at all costs. That is a church, I believe, that can transform a community. And we all nod our heads, but these are pretty hard. Because it means that next time someone makes you angry, says something you don't want to hear, doesn't do something you thought they were going to do, you've got to assume the best before assuming the worst. And we do not go behind their backs and talk about them 
and tear them down. We protect each other's greatness at all costs. What could God do with that church? And so my hope this year is that we're a church that embodies all three of those postures. May it come from our mind to our heart and be outpouring from our hands. Because again, it's not enough to just have it in the mind. If that mind doesn't have any heart, it's cold, it's just data, it's just information. We need more than that. And then we've got to do a heart check this time of year. We've got to say, how's my heart doing? Because there's a haunting verse where Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah. But I never forget this verse. I remember the first time I read it, it just landed like a brick. And what's that verse? Matthew 15. He says to us, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And what is the result of that? They worship me in vain. What good is head knowledge without the heart? And what good is the heart without the doing? They've got to work together. Otherwise, our worship is in vain. How's your heart? We start talking about church. Are you just going through the motions? Just checking it off a list? Or are you passionately in love with Jesus? But I don't want to end it there. More than that. Yes, are you passionately loving Jesus? Can I ask the harder question? Are you passionately in love with his family? You know what I mean? Oh, we'll all sit there and go, I love Jesus. I mean, that's, that's good. Your culture won't even hate you for that one. It's a whole nother thing to show up and say, I am passionately in love with the family of God. How's your heart doing? And that outpouring of love for God and his people and his community, does that make its way to your hands as you become the hands and feet of Jesus throughout the world? I want us to be a blessing to our community. That if Radiant Church shut its doors tomorrow, would be dearly missed. And I think it's time for us to roll up our sleeves and ask, what does that look like and how do we do it? It's time to get dirty and it's time to get her done. From the head to the heart to the hands. Because we need all three. Let's pray.